Hello, welcome to 360 Yourself, the podcast show centered around self-awareness and improvement. I'm Jamie Neal, host of 360 Yourself. So, a little bit of information of how the podcast came about. In 2014, I had a breakdown and was hospitalized. Too much work, too much anxiety, too much coffee, and not enough self-care. In the hospital, lying there with my thoughts, I had to rethink my entire way of life. The doctor said I was overworked and my body just gave up. Now, I'm not gonna say it wasn't scary, but it was a bit of a turning point for me. From there, I started to rebuild myself, reading hundreds of self-help books and questioning everything from, why do we have triggers? Why do we have egos? What is manifesting and what is identity? Many years later, someone recommended that I start a podcast because I've always been interested about how others lead their lives. And thus, 360 Yourself was born, interviewing incredible minds about how they understand themselves and how they utilize their knowledge and awareness to set out into their space. 360 Yourself is a dedicated podcast meeting brilliant and curious minds and looking at the world around them. I speak to artists, musicians, sports athletes, authors, CEOs, and experts in human behaviors, released every Sunday at 12 p.m. I ask questions about their mindset, journey, values, and ethos to fully understand how each of their minds work. How can we become more of ourselves to grow to the ultimate person we know we can be? If you do enjoy the episodes that you're listening to, please visit our Instagram page at 360 underscore yourself to let us know what you like and how you're learning. Or you can email us jamie at 360yourself.co.uk. That's jamie at 360yourself.co.uk. Hello, hello, hello. That's me trying to do harmonies, but it failed miserably. Anyway, fail is about life, isn't it? Sometimes you've got to fail in life. Anyway, you're back back to 360 yourself you found us back back here where we are with juicy juicy guests and this one is immensely amazing and his journey has been absolutely incredible and i think we can learn a lot by his journey so in a short version he and his wife went through ivf about nine times they racked up about two hundred fifty thousand dollars in debt And at the time, he was working at a bank, so he knew the ins and outs and what they could do and what they could not do. And he was coming to his last cent, and he had to have $10,000 in his bank within two days, and he had nothing left. And so as a last resort, he essentially robbed a bank. He robbed a bank, plain and simple, um, using a note and just said, I'm robbing this bank. Please hand over X amount of money. And he did this for a number of attempts and succeeded. And then I think after a year, year and a half, um, the FBI came on board and he was arrested. And we discuss at this podcast about this journey coming to that point, what he could have done, how do we learn from these situations, what we, to be true, and what is the honest way of doing things in life, even if you're at your lowest point and you're struggling, what is the right thing to do? And this is a really beautiful story about a man who has come to his own after many years of reflection to discuss his journey what he could have done right and also to think about the system that we're in about IVFs and really going the distance and having that child especially when so many things are uncertain in our lives having a warm family having that child to really nurture and be as a family is really important to a lot of people not for everyone but for most people um 
And just hearing his story as well, his trial, his tribulations, his reflection, where he's at now mentally was really inspiring. And I really applaud him for coming on the show as well to talk about his self-awareness and his self-journey. And I hope as you're listening, you can learn something about his journey and hopefully apply it to your own. So enjoy. Hey, Mr. Reed, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. Good morning, Jamie. Really good. Thank you. Great. How was your bank holiday weekend? What did you get up to? It was lovely and sunny, I'm assuming, where you are? Yeah, it was. It was. It was uh, uh, weather wasn't so bad here. Just spent the, the uh, just spent the, uh, uh, oh, okay. Yeah, just had a, had a really fun weekend with just some friends, uh, but did not, nothing great. So uh, uh, looking forward to next Saturday. Uh, I'm actually looking forward to actually watching some of the coronation. Oh yeah, I'm going to be in Los Angeles. I'm 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 uh I'm going to be taking a flight with me to Los Angeles. But um yeah, this is the corner. I heard that he's going to be planting trees in his garden or something. And also he said that to reduce carbon footprint uh, etc he's going to be reusing some chairs or something I heard like this and I was like okay. All right, as long as long as you're doing something for the planet, all right then. Yeah, no, I mean this is this is a I, I was going to say it's a once in a lifetime uh, event because of, of the the amount of time that uh, Queen Elizabeth was, was on the throne from fifty two to uh, obviously till last year. So, um, uh, but but I think we both realised that it's only a matter of time, be it ten years, fifteen years, and then William will ascend to the throne. So we will, we will go through this again. Yeah, he, he's he's pretty old, isn't he? Uh, Charles, yeah, I think he's in his seventies. I mean, it's not not outrageous, but yeah. But I'm just saying, looking at the way things are going to play themselves out, we're looking at probably I'd say about ten to fifteen years, and then he'll step aside to allow his son to take over. Yeah. Um, so we'll have one obviously this this coming Saturday, and then probably again in about ten or fifteen years, we'll go through it again. I know, isn't that it, isn't it crazy? I mean, my my dad was having a really interesting conversation. He was like saying, apparently, this is this is apparently. I don't know if this is so true, but he was like, tourists come to Madame Tussauds, then they come to uh, Buckingham Palace. Okay, and I don't know if that's true or not. And I said, no, the 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 people come here for the royal family. They don't they don't come here for Madame Tussauds. I mean, I, I think Madame Tussauds is is in most places in most cities or like New York or I think, I think, I don't know. Yeah. There's but, satellite um, ones everywhere. Yeah. So I was, I was like, but he, he was making a really interesting conversation about um the, the Royal family and like, do people, do people really worship them? And if they weren't around, would people still come to the UK to see Buckingham palace or do they come to see the Royal family and mm. in, interesting conversation because I see some countries don't have Royal families and stuff and yet they go to, to the, the yeah. country. So oh, do I think there are, there are massive benefit to this country? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I I wouldn't want to swap places with them because, you know, one no. of the things that we forget, Jamie, is that we can just go out and do anything we want. Anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't understand what it would be like to have that sort of curtailed. And you say, oh, I just want to go out to the stop to the shops. I'm like, no, you can't. No, you can't. What do you need? We'll send somebody out to get it. Yeah. Uh, it's a different life entirely. So, it's a, you know, double edged sword. 
Yeah. Uh, but I wouldn't want to swap places with them, and I, I wish him all the best. Yeah, it's it's like one of the one of the royal family just like I want to get some eggs. Just let me get some <laughs> eggs. And then someone's like, "Sorry, we're on a shortage of, shortage of eggs in the UK at the moment. You can't have any." I think one of the things that I thought was really beautiful, I saw a, a documentary once, and it was the Queen when she goes up to Balmoral. Uh, there's a there's a village that's obviously in close proximity to Balmoral, and the Queen goes by herself around the shops. No the way. Yeah, and I couldn't believe it. And they said it's amazing. No, no, you know, might be somebody at distance, but but basically she's accessible, and everybody knows Arch the Queen, and and so they leave her alone, and she can. I think that's the closest semblance that's... that she would have to a normal life. So the, obviously this is not the same thing, but um, Barack Obama, who obviously is the former president, um, Sting, and I think it was Bruce Springsteen was in a local Barcelona uh, restaurant last week, mm. just randomly, just randomly, just just popped in to get to get some dinner, and you're like, right, okay, cool. <laughs> I mean that's that 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 shopper who now. Well, whoever was on on duty that day had a really, but you would probably what they they probably would have done is obviously cleared the restaurant probably because obviously because obviously Obama because he yeah. obviously has security and stuff. But I mean, imagine imagine being a server to Bruce Springsteen, Sting, Sting and Obama. Great, uh, that's weird, isn't it? <laughs> I know, I know. And he's and he's like, oh, I'd love to get some paella, and they're like, oh, that's fifteen euros. And he's like, this is so cheap. <laughs> Him, him, him there sitting with his millions in the back. <laughs> Hundreds of millions. What are you on about? Hundreds of millions. Yeah, I know. He's crazy. Anyway, um, so enough about the Queen yeah. and our weekend. Um, it's great to have you on the show. Um, I'm fascinated by your story. I know we haven't got we haven't got too long, but I, oh. I, I basically want to just get to the crux. Give me like what is your background? Tell me like how it all started. Uh, okay, a little bit of background, obviously. Uh born in South Africa but raised in the United Kingdom. I came here when I was three years of age. So for all intents and purposes, oh, I'm British. And the way I was raised here, and I look at myself as being 100% British. Um, uh, you know, normal kid. I went to regular sort of, you know, primary school, junior school. Uh, I, I initiated, initiated my secondary education in the state system. I went to a comprehensive school uh, until I completed my O-levels. And then at that point, my father's business was doing well and uh, that afforded my parents to enroll me in a private boys school so i went to mama school for boys in south wales where i just studied my a levels before going to university so as you can see i've gone through the whole system here in the united kingdom and as i said i i'm a british guy and then after i i went to, to university to study civil engineering but it wasn't really for me and after a couple of years I left I went back worked for my father for a year and as a consequence I had this opportunity to go out to San Diego in uh, 1987 a young 22 year old man and I was supposed to be out there for two weeks that two weeks turned into 20 years so uh, it was it was supposed to be just a two week you know uh, reconnaissance a reconnaissance for work uh, but it turned into 20 years and it was 20 pretty incredible years. Isn't that funny how sometimes you you go out somewhere and then suddenly 
you become so immersed in it and then it 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 widens your scope of what you thought your life would be you thought there'd be for two weeks and suddenly you're yes. like oh 20 years later i'm there <laughs> and I've, I've i've had so many people like go on holiday and then they never return that or mm. they go there for like for like i don't know two weeks or like a month for work or took like, a trial or whatever and then they spend like 10 years there yeah. um i find that i find that fascinating that they just never leave it's great I did. I, I four months after the initial two weeks, I went back after four months for two weeks, and then I returned to the U.S. and I was pretty much there for the rest of that time. Wow! Uh, but but it's just weird how things happen, and that's that's the whole thing about destiny. I never would have thought that those circumstances would have befallen me, but now standing here and looking back, oh, to me it's like, oh wow, you know what? I see how all of these things had a bearing on themselves and they all lined up really yeah crazy so so you so you're so you're over there you have your you have a company you then meet your partner um which yes. obviously is very complicated um uh, to say to say the least uh, in, in some people's eyes um but not but not because obviously love at first sight as well is a, is a big is a big factor of it um so yeah so w- walk me through that as well the 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 transition of of basically settling down there um, and then meeting your partner and then set up this company. Yeah. So, so I, as I said, I was working there. I actually was working in sales and marketing for a biochemical company and I met my wife to be Patrice through my girlfriend at the time who was an aerobics instructor and one of the aerobics instructors under the umbrella of Patrice. Uh, she ran, I think at that time, probably 15 local San Diego area gyms. Uh, she was the director of all of them and had obviously managers at each location. And my girlfriend happened to work as an, an instructor in about two or three different locations. But the personal connection came because my girlfriend at the time, Trisha, used to babysit Patrice's two youngest children, uh, Morgan and Amber. They must have been about maybe four, four and five at the time, or four and six, something like that. So my girlfriend babysat, and then sometimes to uh, to help my girlfriend out, I would drop the kids back off at Patrice's house. So I met Patrice for the first time in 1987. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, and how I knew was through this, this connection. Uh, but I never saw her through the prism of a potential girlfriend for the obvious reasons. She was married. She mm-hmm. was married to a, an ex-professional uh, NFL player. Uh, she had kids. Uh, Patrice was older than me. So for all of these factors, I did not see Patrice as a potential girlfriend. She's mm-hmm. a married lady. I do have some morals. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, so what happened was in 1990, so three years later, um, through one thing or another, I came to realize that Patrice uh, was going through a divorce. And um, it was around uh, Labor Day in in, uh, in 1990, which is the first Monday in September. Uh, I saw Patrice uh, getting on a bike, on a motorcycle outside the gym. And I was so surprised. I'd never, well, I didn't know you like motorcycles. And she goes, oh yeah, this is the 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 company photographer he just gave me a lift to another another gym and so I asked uh, Patrice well do you fancy going out for a ride on Labor Day because I think it was on the Thursday I said on the Monday let's go out I'll just 
and it wasn't a date. I just had nothing else to do. And, and what was nice is I thought, here, I can do something on this day with somebody. And there was no expectations of this going anywhere. It's just two people spending the day off work. Uh-huh. And uh, so I took her on the back of my bike, gave her a, an e-ticket ride. Oh, hang on. Is that dating me? If you remember Disneyland? That used to get little books of tickets, A, B, C, D, E, and the no. best rides were the best rides were the were the ones that you needed an E ticket for. Anyway, oh right, no, yeah, yeah. So I was dating myself. So so yeah, I put it on the back of my bike, and no word of a lie, uh, Jamie, I maxed it out. So even though my speedo was reading about 186, I'd say it was a good clean 170 miles an hour that we were flying down California Road. Great. <laughs> At and. So we ended up, you know, parking, having lunch. And that was the first time that Patrice and I ever got to really speak to each other. And we truly found out, or each of us found out, wow, the other person is completely different to anything that we'd ever expected. Mm. And uh, and that's how it started. So it wasn't a date. and uh, But that was the start of us actually, you know, realizing that oh, maybe we have something here and uh so when we basically we did start dating and uh then about a about a six months later we actually moved in together and in 1992 i proposed to patrice the uh, year that i was born oh just <laughs> well what, what a great what a great year what a great year so we we got engaged and six months later we got married it uh uh, at Little Church of the West in Las Vegas and had our reception at Caesar's Palace. Amazing. So, so Vegas always has a special place for me and Patrice because it was where we got married. For sure. And so fa- let's let's fast forward then. So you get married. I'm assuming that you then, you have a house. You then go, okay, kids. What's yeah, the situation with kids? I mean, that, that's the, that for me, that's the sort of, because I've had a lot of conversations with with my friends, even just my my best friend recently, who's who's getting married next year, and I was like, oh, and he's uh, thirty one, and I was like, oh, so it's kids kids on the horizon for you? He said, well, we'll just sort of see how it goes. I mean, we'll 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 we'll, we'll plan for these things, but you just never know, um, and so we'll be ready for all outcomes. So I'd love to know, yeah, how how it happened for you. Now, see that, that now we obviously we had that conversation. By mm. this time, Patrice had had three children with her with her soon-to-be ex-husband, um, and it was during the delivery of the third child uh, because she'd already had a couple of C-sections. Uh, the the physician that was going to deliver the child said, "Oh, are you guys looking to have any more children?" And Patrice goes, "No, this is it. This is the, our third. He goes, "Oh, well, while I'm in there, do you want me to take care of that and snip your fallopian tube?" And uh, she said, yeah, why not? So, okay, I'll add $200, $200 to the bill. And with that simple cut, basically, it meant that if Patrice and I wanted to have children, we would have to find some way to circumvent the fact that she doesn't have a fallopian tube anymore. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, IVF was the only option that was available to us. But from that perspective, we were considered to be ideal candidates for IVF in vitro fertilization. Because all we were doing was trying to negate the fact that there was no tube. So basically, they would take the the egg out of Patrice's ovary, uh, combine it with my sperm outside of the uterus, create an embryo, 
and then two or three days later, put the embryo right in the uterus and you guys should be good to go. And so that's what everything looked like that. We were considered to be prime candidates, one time only. Yes, there's a, there's a cost to it. I think it was the time we were, it was about $15,000 for a cycle of IVF. Um, we both had good jobs. So the, the finance was an issue, an issue at that time. We did it. We were unsuccessful. So, uh, you know, we, we were very disappointed. But equally, when we looked at everything, everything seemed fine. We just put it down to just bad luck. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was bad luck which you would which uh, you would do and then you then you'd be like okay so let's go for another one let's go let's for another try round. it again and and we did and again it was unsuccessful and everything up until the point of putting the embryo back in the uterus looked perfect there was nothing wrong the thing that we seemed to be falling down with falling down at was when it came to what's called implantation the the embryo implanting itself into the the uterine lining mm-hmm. and then and there's your pregnancy um and Again, to speed things up, we had failure after failure after failure. And eventually, we had eight failed attempts over over the course of about five years. We had mm-hmm. five uh, eight failed attempts. Equally, as, as I pointed out with regards to the cost, by this time, we had seriously run up over six figures well over six figures in in cost fifteen thousand a pop we did it eight times we finally got a success on the ninth and uh but i was i was devastated i had borrowed everything i could i mean i'd leveraged everything that we had i'd maxed out credit cards easily had over sixty thousand dollars in credit card debt and just the servicing that of that alone was costing me thousands per mm-hmm. month um but you know what? We had a success. And we ended up with a little girl whom we called uh, Angelique. And she was because she was our angel baby. Mm-hmm. And then and then so you had so and, and, and anyone in any situation like that, when you're in debt and I, I uh, I've never been in, in that kind of debt, but I can only imagine the panic, the frustration um, and then the sort of worry going, how do I get myself out of this now? And obviously, there's. There's the the bitter there's the bitter sorrow, right? The 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 thing is that you've got your cherished new baby, but then it's come with massive, massive weight of debt uh, yes. that you so and but also like the the analogy of life, like money's money's nothing. It's all about connection and family and stuff. So actually, you're absolutely right. Yeah, so it's it's very tricky, but you obviously have that balance. So what then happens after then you go okay? So how do I fix this problem? How how do I how do I get money to to sort out my debt yeah so so one of the things that we did t- towards the end I, I need, both of us gave up our sort of uh salary jobs uh, i left the biochemical company patrice left the the gym uh business and we set up our own company we set up a a, a food delivery service in 19 1992 yeah we did we set it up then um and it was called gourmet express and we were the forerunners to Dine and Dash, uh, you know, Uber Eats, Eat Out, whatever. We started that company in 1992 in San Diego, whereby we even had to explain to restaurants how the whole thing worked. Your customers will call us. We'll place the order. We'll send somebody to pick it up. All of the stuff, everything that everybody now takes for granted. Oh, I know how Uber Eats works. I know how to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, we we came up with it in 1992. So I, uh, where things 
sort of turned for us was right when Patrice finally got pregnant. Um, there was a massive company coming down the, the San Diego coastline that was just eating up all of the delivery services as they came across them. And uh, they were a juggernaut, an absolute juggernaut, like basically an Uber Eats. Mm -hmm. And so we were just a small sort of mom and pop operation. So when they came down, they leveraged all they were. We were hearing from other delivery services. They were leveraging the, their restaurants and basically putting them out of business. Mm. So to preempt that, we basically sold the business for what we could at that time and used that money to uh, fund the rest of the IVF. So money was starting to run out. And then where things really got compounded for me was right after Angelique was born, Patrice became really, really ill. And in hindsight now, looking back, because this now you know, we're talking 1997, so, so over you know 20 years ago, um, what it was was it was all of the hormonal treatment that she was on for five years. Mm -hmm. uh, the physicians had anticipated that the pregnancy would reset her system but it didn't she was still under a lot of influence of the hormones that she'd been injected with for five years straight mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so with patrice becoming really ill uh she went from somebody who was a, an epitome of fitness to somebody that barely had the strength to get out of bed mm -hmm. so that was the start of of it for me where i would now had all of these financial pressures uh uh, weighing up upon me and on top of that now my you know my rock my 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 partner in life is not not well not well at all mm -hmm. so what i said was look patrice you focus on just yourself and angelique i'll take over all of the responsibilities for running the house paying the bills this and that you don't worry about any of that so in some ways I think that's one of the things. So then Patrice had no idea what was going on with us financially. Uh, I didn't say anything. I would just always infer, you know, everything's fine. I've got it. I've got it. Uh, but things were getting worse and worse. And and then on top of that, for me, um, I had fallen out with my father. And right up until that point, my father has probably been the greatest benefactor in my life. He was an amazing father. And even though we had a bit of a tenuous relationship, sort of emotionally, my father never shirked his his parental obligation towards me. And, and, and unfortunately, my father passed about five years ago. And, and I do feel bad that I never really got to have this conversation with my dad and tell him just how much I appreciated everything that he did. I think um, I think a lot I think a lot of people can echo on what you're saying i think we don't say enough when the time is right yeah. and then when the time isn't it's past and it's one thing with my family that we always say i love you every single day oh, before we go to bed you when you in the morning like it's the thing i i'm i i uh, we have a lot of love in the family but it's is is that factor that you just never know and so and i and i also think that like, i hear like my friends having um qualms with their family and their mom and dad and i'm like is it really going to be worth it in like 15, 20 years and you haven't really like a good relationship? Like, is it really worth it in the grand scheme of life? Yeah, and I, I, and I, 
right yeah but... and, I, and i and i look at if i'm like i know suits if you watch the tv show where he like he 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 reconciles with his mother and he didn't really get to say what he wanted to say at the funeral and i'm just like i find it so sad when people like because i'm like is it worth it is it worth it in life it's not really i don't know you, no, you're absolutely right. It's not, but why is it that we don't see it at that time? And we because because only... because we're because we're we're beings of growth. What we we only feel what we want to feel at that moment in time, and we're not ready to be mature enough or really to see the wider picture. And uh, and that and that, and uh, and that's the question of like when we're teenagers. Why why when you we're teenagers, people like I don't know, like you know, I go down my uh, my pet my where my parents live. They have this like bus stop and the bus stop is always bashed up and i always think like why do teenagers feel the need to like hit a a glass thing and like when you get older you just think that's just really silly like why would you what's the point of it but when you're a teenager you just think you're so cool and whatever and like you just look at yourself and go like why did why did people act like that when you're when you're younger it's because like they they don't know any better. They just think they're so entitled and their egos and that sort of thing. What but it takes time. Yeah, it yeah. takes time to like to to develop and to mature. I'm not saying I don't condone that uh, what they should be doing mm. and the violence and that sort of thing. But the things that we did when we were teenagers is not the things we would do when we're 30 years old or 25 Absolutely. years old. Yeah. So so um, so yeah. And just to close this out, I will say this. Right at the end, Jamie, right at the end, uh, I didn't see my dad for the for pretty much the last two years of his life. We fell out over, again, stupidity. We fell out over something. And one day my mom gives me a call after not speaking to my dad for two years. And I just get a call from my mom out of the blue. And she says, oh, Reed, you need to go see your father. And I was like, no, no, I don't need to see him. You know what it is? He knows, he's got my number. He knows where I live. If he wants to see me, he know he knows how to get hold of me. Mm. And my mum said, like these five words, she said, Oh, your father is dying. And it was like, oh. And I went to go see my dad the next day. And for the next six weekends, I went and spent every weekend with my dad. Mm. And unfortunately, he'd been diagnosed with uh with lung cancer, and the lung cancer had now spread to other organs in his body, including his brain. And but I was so, so lucky to be blessed to spend the last six weekends with my dad. Mm. And by the time I, I was there, the, the, the cancer had was affecting his brain and and a lot of my dad was disappearing in front of my eyes. But there was enough of my dad left for the two of us to get closure. And it was wonderful without getting into everything. I can honestly say sitting here, oh, I'm so blessed mm. to have got that closure with my dad and vice versa. Mm. My dad my dad was prepared to go to his grave and never see my face again. And I'm so grateful to my mom yeah. that, she, that she gave both my dad and myself such the a opportunity. Yeah, the opportunity. Uh, so so that's just that. So 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 um I, I did get closure with my dad and it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. But the point uh, the reason why I brought all of this up was Obviously, we were in massive financial trouble. I'd fallen out with my dad and had no support for my dad anymore. Mm-hmm. He basically said, don't call me anymore. And when my dad says something, you don't question it. You yeah. do not question it. So when my dad said that, I know, don't call him because he's not going to take your call. So with those pressures and then compounding the fact that my wife was really sick, every single day I was just 
fighting just to get through every single day. Mm-hmm. And then by this time, I think I was working for a bank writing software. And in May of 2000, so you can see three, I've been dealing with this now for over two to three years of this constant financial pressures and everything. Uh, I did a bank requisite. I wrote all the checks, mailed them out. And then I thought, okay, let me see where we're at. Bank, bank, you know, with the, with the bank balance left in. And I suddenly realized, shoot, I'm about 10,000 in the hole. And I'd rate, but I'd mailed the checks. I put all, I'd sign them. I put them in the mailbox and it's like, whoa, in about 72 hours, those checks will be presented to my bank and they're going to bounce. So I knew I had to come up with $10,000 in less than 72 hours. And it was at that moment that I had my eureka moment. And I decided, you know what? I'm going to rob a bank. Now, it might sound kind of crazy, but I'd had, you know, I'd, I'd had training at the bank. Even though I wasn't customer facing, I went through all of the training uh, that you're supposed to. And it was there that I learned some information without giving anything away to the, mm. to the listeners as to how, what you're supposed to do in the event of a bank robbery. And using that information, I went out uh, two days later and I robbed a bank. I robbed a competitor of ours. Uh, but again, uh, I just did it myself. Uh, I did have two best friends. I had two best friends that I'd met in 1986. Uh, Tony and James, they were my best friends. One was the best man at my wedding. Professionally, uh, James was a sergeant in the San Diego Police Department, and Tony was the special agent in charge of the DEA. So uh, having said that, obviously, I had nobody that I could rope in. Thank God. You're definitely going to rope in the sergeant of the DEA. Oh, dear. So, so, yeah, so so I think I'm I'm making light of it, only because maybe that's one way I can kind of process it. But it was it was a stupid idea. But I knew if I if I did it this particular way, it would minimize uh, the potential of things going wrong. Also, this and this is important for me because of the information that I had. I knew that if I did it in this particular way, I would not cause any trauma or or threat to the teller because Mm. i knew you do not need to threaten anybody you don't have to show a weapon you don't need to use violence you just need to communicate that you want the money and once i did that they did their part i got the money i left it was over if you if you had a moment now and you look back at yourself what would you tell yourself to not do or to do like you yeah. know, we talk we talk about like our look our teenage person. Like the things I would say to my teenage thing, I'm like, don't worry, you don't need to do this, or whatever. What would you say back to that person now? Uh, you know, I, it, uh, in hindsight, now I would say obviously I should we should have just done everything to get out of the situation we were in with regards to the house. It was the house that was basically bringing us down, and mm. but because the market was upside down, I knew that if we tried to sell the house, we would still be left with a liability that we wouldn't cover from selling the house. Now, now I realize, you know what, Reed? You should have just taken it. You should have just taken that hit, taken three, four, five steps backwards. Mm. But that's where you start from. You've, you know, I had a wonderful wife. She was an amazing partner. 
we could we could face anything. Um, but I think at the time I was too embarrassed. I was too embarrassed and ashamed how my friends and family would view me if I said, oh, I had to sell my house. We're living in rented accommodation now. I've had to sell everything and start again. I was I thought they'd all look at me as being some sort of a failure. And I think if I could go back and tell that version of Reed back in, you know, uh, 2000, I would have said, you know what, take it on the chin, big guy. You are going to be more impressive to people if they see you come back from. This. Yeah, that's because I, yeah. I, I think, I think because like when when you hear these stories of uh, of these uh, actors and entrepreneurs who have bounced back from such horrible situations where the family example or they had three businesses and or or you make it later in life um with like kfc or whatever he made his millions like when he was 60 or whatever mm. people people find hope in that yeah. um and they and they love they love those stories of people really like digging in and really like picking themselves up after such a a, fa- a fail um yes in in life but again it's i think there was a really interesting uh um video yesterday of someone saying michael michael jordan uh was 15 years in the game um and nine years of that um he but went i don't know how six minute championships or whatever Ooh. and someone said uh before that um he was a failure then and he was like well no because it, it took him 15 years to get to yeah. ultimate stardom it's not failure it's mm-hmm. every year getting better and better and better yeah, and I think I think what it is, I think maybe my mistake was I really thought at the time that other people's opinions mattered. Which and, it doesn't. And, <laughs> exactly. And isn't it funny? Hey, I, I went to prison because I didn't listen <laughs> because I didn't listen to that. And and I, I, I do agree. And and so that's something that I think, you know, and, and that's part of part of life is like I said, it's not the destination, it really is the journey. Mm. And and us doing that back in 2000 would have would have been just part of our story we would like i said we would have taken a few steps back we would have, we would have you know consolidated everything and then we would have moved forward but again i just didn't see it at the time i was you know i was in my it's probably us old enough i was in my 30s but i i think that the 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 mistake i made at that time was thinking that other people's opinions really were important in my life and mattered and they didn't and i and i think i think that comes of well i think it comes of age and ego and like just dropping it all because i think i i i read that simon cowell uh cowell um moved back to his family home when he was 31 Mm. um after failing in quotation marks in the music business and then basically reinvented himself and came back and some other people would say, oh, well, why did you move back to, I mean, you move back to your parents' house. And um, and, other, and others just go, well, he's obviously reinvented himself. He's doing the work, et cetera, et cetera. But if he wouldn't listen to everyone at that time, I don't think we would, probably would have had Simon Cowell because he might have not had the courage and the bravery to go back to his home, find his feet, and then jump off yeah. and stuff. I, 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 think, I think we all need to have failure in our lives to experience that, to experience mm. that, and it's how you deal with that. And and if I had to be perfectly honest, Jamie, even with my story, I, I am such a strong believer in destiny. And now where I am, 
because don't forget, I'm talking about something that happened in twenty in the, in two thousand. Mm. Two thousand is when I robbed a bank. Here we are. It's twenty twenty three. Twenty three years have passed in my life since since that moment. And standing here now, looking back, I see how all of these things actually fitted together. And and if I have to be honest, it was my destiny to go to prison. And I'll the reason why I say that is when I was a young boy, around nine, ten, I used to have this recurring dream. I'd have it once, maybe twice a year. But in the dream, I knew that I was in prison. And by that, I just meant I knew I was confined. I wasn't free. I was within a within an a, a building and an institution that I knew I couldn't leave. And, but two things, one, I didn't know why I was there. What did I do that to, to bring me here? And, um, uh, but also more importantly for me, I was not scared. I didn't feel like, Oh my gosh, this wasn't a nightmare. I didn't wake up in a cold sweat. I would just wake up and like, Oh wow. Oh, I was in prison. That was kind of weird. And I used to have that dream every year once or twice a year from the age of about nine. And when did those dreams come to an end? When I went to prison. And so in some ways, I feel like that those dreams were, not saying an omen, sort of foreshadowing for me to let me know that when I do finally find myself in that situation, the latter part of my dream, do not be scared. And And I'll be honest, this might seem crazy, but I was never scared one day during that whole experience from being arrested by the FBI on the 3rd of June uh, to the day of my release. Not one day did I ever was I ever scared being in federal prison. And uh, it was it was actually part of my destiny. And what we love to do at the podcast is ask a give back. Uh, what would you give back to your younger self or someone listening that would inspire them? Oh, Just one piece. Never underestimate what you can do. Never underestimate what you can do. Uh, I mean, I, I now realize that there is so much that I'm capable of that I never thought I could do. Um, and And so that would be my thing. Never underestimate yourself. And in conjunction with that, be open to letting destiny fulfill your life because it is destiny is touching us all and has a, has a plan for us all. It might not mean stardom and wealth and everything for everybody. No, that, that, that isn't necessarily what each of our journeys are, but destiny has a role for each of us. Uh, you know, you're traveling, you know, these next few days, all of that is part of your destiny and you have no idea what, next steps destiny has for you and it might present itself in the next few days jamie and your life will go in a direction that you never imagined i I find i find that notion quite fascinating the idea that one i like my friend my friend always says is that one day you're feeling crummy and the next day could be the best day ever and i and i like that notion that the next couple days it could literally just turn inside out i could get Mm called out of nowhere whatever and I, fi- I find that notion relatively exciting that yeah. it's the future is the unknown. Be Anything open can happen. To it. Be open to and it. And you, you have you have to work on that energy. And I and I've been I've been doing a lot of self work uh, recently about carrying really good open energy constantly through my day because I think yeah. you can do it like 
for a couple of hours or sometimes you're just not feeling it for like an hour. And I'm trying to practice on a whole, the whole day being really, really open, like the yes. whole day. Like when I leave the thing, like my house and I go and, you know, to the store and I, and I, and I speak to someone who's the cashier, like be really, really open all day, every mm. day. Cause I think you can close and open and some days you're just not feeling it. But I think if you try to push through and really try to open, even if you don't feel like opening, the world is so much lighter and much yes. more beautiful when you open up. Absolutely. And you are right. Because, and think about it from this perspective, that, that, the, that how you feel about something doesn't intrinsically change what you're actually dealing with. However the way you feel and the way you present yourself with regards to those issues is night and day. If you can keep yourself upbeat and look at things through a, a positive prism, your experience of that will be so much better. Much easier said than done. I mean, hey, I, 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 otherwise we'd all be doing it. Easier said than done, but, but really, really try, even if everything seems like it's just closing it around you, Try to be. Try to look at things positively as to how you can move yourself out. And, mm. and two things with regards to that: whatever you're dealing with, you need to decide. Uh, don't worry about it. Don't moan about it. Do something about it. Because mm. worrying and moaning about it does nothing. Put a plan into action and execute on it. And if there is nothing that you can do, then you have to just accept it and move forward. Take it as, okay, well, there's nothing I can do about that. I will take that as a given, but I move forward. So either mm. you accept it or you do something about it. But don't just worry and talk about, oh, I should do this. Should do, it. do it. Just do it. Like I, That's why I love the Nike quote, just do it. Yeah, I, I know. And it's funny. They, they did nail it. Just do it. It is absolutely correct. Indeed. Well, I want to say thank you so much for coming on 360 Yourself. You've been wonderful. And I just, I'm <laughs> fascinated by your story and your outlook to life. And just the the give back that you're giving to everyone, and just being open and just doing it. I think that I think we all need to do that more in our life. Just just do it. So I want to say thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Sir. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to our awesome guests. Please subscribe to our podcast to access all our astonishing episodes released every Sunday, 12 p.m. We are available on all listening platforms: Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. You can also find us on Instagram for more discussions, education, and inspiration at 360 underscore yourself. The host, that's me, Jamie Neal, on Instagram at JamieNealJN. And once again, thank you for listening and remember to 360 yourself.